Welcome to season two of Talking PFAS. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. I recommend that you have a listen to season one to catch up on some of the foundational chats we had about PFAS. I'm your host, Kayleen Bell. Today's episode was meant to be about PFAS in wastewater treatment plants, landfills, biosolids. I'll be bringing that one to you now in October. I purposely delayed that episode because the CRC Care Cleanup Conference for 2019 was just held in Adelaide between the 8th and the 12th of September and that conference incorporated the second international PFAS conference in Australia. There were 35 countries represented in the delegates and today's discussion is with Professor Ravi Naidu, the founder of CRC Care. I guess I've been working on this for 30 years now and over 30 years I've been able to develop quite a lot of knowledge in all sorts of contaminants. Is PFAS the worst that you've seen? PFAS is a challenge because it is an emergent contaminant. It's also a challenge because you're not dealing with a single active ingredient in that if you have a lead contaminated site, you're only dealing with lead. PFAS is a mixture of nearly 4,000 different chemicals and we've been able to identify no more than 45 active ingredients, of which there are only few for which we have some knowledge of potential risk it poses to the environment, for instance. In my 30 years, this is one contaminant that I believe is far more challenging to come with a solution than, for instance, for lead or arsenic. And first off, we discuss CRC care, what it is, what it does, why it matters, and the importance of funding for this organisation to continue its critical work. So I'm at the Cleanup Conference 2019, which is incorporating the second international PFAS conference. And I'm with the organiser and the founder of CRC Care, Professor Ravi Naidu. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you, Karen. For people that are unfamiliar with what CRC Care is or what it does. Could we just start with an explanation of this organisation? Thank you, Kylene. CRC is a cooperative research centre. The very first word cooperative means that the partnership ought to be one where people are able to collaborate, cooperate and work together. And also a requirement of CRC is, is that that is led by end users meaning industries and also government departments where they have problems and they require research providers to come with a solution for those problems. And at the end of that, whatever they come up with, there has to be potential for utilization of that. So CRC Care is Cooperative Research Center for Contamination Assessment and Remediation of the Environment. Our job is to develop innovative technologies and solutions for the prevention, assessment, and remediation of contaminated land. Wonderful. How long has CRC Care been going? I initiated CRC Care proposal in 1998. We submitted this proposal for 1999 uh, selection panel, and we didn't win funding. And uh, I was able to get together industries and also government departments and resubmitted the application in 2002. We failed to win funding then. And I said, wow, we have such a massive contamination problem. And so I decided then to 
recast the application and with support from the industry and government departments, particularly EPAs, we submitted the application in 2004 and in 2005 we got funded. So we have been operating since 2005, initially for a period of seven years, but in 2010 we submitted another application for an extension of CRC care to 2020 and we were one of two CRCs at that time that got funded for up to 2020, which basically means that by June 30, 2020, we have funds to operate, and beyond that, we are, there is a massive uncertainty. So your funding comes from the federal government? So uh, because the CRCs are end-user-led, it means that if the end-users have a problem, they must invest as well. And when they invest, and if it is also for the benefit of national economy, and we go through a competitive process, and if you're selected, then Commonwealth also f provides funds. So it's a joint operation that brings together Commonwealth, state governments, and also industries. So that funding that's due to end in 2020, is that funding from the Commonwealth government? That funding that ends is from the Commonwealth government, and therefore, at the moment, we're operating under the umbrella of cooperative research centres, and with the expiry of that funding, we are no longer regarded as a cooperative research centre. If CRC Care did not get funding, what would it mean for Australians in contaminated land? Australia has uh, potentially 160,000 contaminated sites, and the way CRC operates is on the one hand CRC works with the regulators and therefore we are able to work with them to come up with guidance documents that helps practitioners assess and clean up contaminated land. And at the same time works with the end users where they have challenging contaminated sites for which they require research. Now, over the last 20 years, we have remediated less than 5% of contaminated lands, which basically means that we have still got massive number of contaminated sites and these are in the urban environments majority and some in uh, the greater outback as well. We must clarify for listeners of this podcast the 160,000 contaminated sites in Australia are not all PFAS because this is a PFAS podcast. We must clarify there are a range of contaminants present on those sites. Absolutely right. The 160,000 uh, contaminated sites, these are what we call legacy or conventional contaminated sites, not emergent contaminated sites. When you take into consideration emergent contaminated sites, the number of contaminated sites will be more than 160,000. Funding that is due to and in June 30th, 2020, means that CRC care would not continue beyond that point. And if it doesn't continue beyond that point, we have the massively large number of contaminated sites that require new innovative technologies for us to clean up and convert that into effectively real estate, because the majority of these are in the urban environment. That will stop happening to a very large extent. At the same time, we are the only country where we have a centre of excellence that focuses entirely on contaminated site assessment and remediation of the environment. It means that there will be no such centre of excellence that works with the regulators to come up with guidance documents, no such centre of excellence that brings together end users and collectively works with them to deliver solutions for contaminated land. And internationally, globally, the people who are looking at CRC care to provide support to them as well. Without CRC care there, and these people that are here today at the conference, they wouldn't be communicating with one another, is, is that true? 
That's, that's precisely right, yes. The uniqueness of CRC Care is that this is the only entity globally that has been able to bring together regulators and owners of potentially contaminated sites. In doing so, what we are doing is advancing both guidance as well as new technologies, which won't happen if we are not to have that sort of partnership with regulators and industry. And if we don't have this, the number of scientists that we get from outside Australia into Australia, that won't happen. Because they are coming here because of the uniqueness of CRC care, being able to get together regulators and owners of contaminated site together with the scientists. So it, you're playing a very important role. How many countries are represented here? Cleanup conference is something which uh, I initiated in 1996, and I still remember we had only 246 delegates. Today we have just about 700 delegates from 35 different countries, and many of them are also leaders in the field of contaminants assessment and remediation. We know that PFAS can affect anywhere that firefighting foam was used. We know that it's in being found in biosolids, and if that's land applied to agriculture, it could be there. Landfills, wastewater treatment plants, port facilities, even paper mills. We're looking at defence, all eyes on defence. Are we doing enough in Australia for those other sites? The first thing uh, we all need to recognise is that every day we are all exposed to PFAS because the active ingredients present in PFAS are present everywhere. In carpet, for example, and those of us who are using non-stick cooking pots, for example, that has PFAS as well. So if my blood is tested today, I will have certain level of PFAS in my system. Then in addition to that, as you said, there are quite a number of activities that can lead to what we call point source contamination. And these point source contamination could have elevated levels of PFAS. And of course, as you mentioned, Defence does have a number of sites, but Defence is investing a lot of money as well now from assessment as well as towards research that helps develop new technologies so that they can accelerate cleanup of PFAS contaminated sites as well. And you are right as well, Kelly that there are many other organisations that would have been using foam and there would be PFAS contaminated sites associated with their activities as well. Local councils, for instance, there will be sites there. ES Services has concerns as well. Minerals industries, petroleum industries, they'll all have PFAS sites largely because it is something which they are they're only recognising now and not before. And the question also to ask is, these foams are being used to save people's lives, and there's a certain minimum requirement for these foams. In US mill spec, we say that if you use the foam, it's a dose fire within 30 seconds. And what we have available now doesn't do that. It takes 43 seconds. Is that fluorine-free foam? Yes, which means that within the 13 seconds, it's posing risk to many people as well. The challenge that these companies and defense is posed with is what do they get if they're walking away from fluorinated surfactants? What should they get that makes certain that we are able to dose fire within 30 seconds? And so they are posed with significant challenge of managing fire, and at the same time, there's challenge because there's also community outrage for what we have now, many contaminated sites. So we need to see how we can come up with a balance between the two. Okay, so your expertise when it comes to PFAS... CRC care was um, 
the first organization within Australia to commence research on PFAS. And this was largely because of the project that the defense had brought to CRC care. And my expertise was developing a technology to clean up PFAS contaminated water, which we are still doing. But the team that CRC care has also includes toxicologists. So we can get toxicologists to look at potential adverse effects arising from PFAS to environment and human health. But what's your qualifications? I am um, trained as a chemist and right now I'm environmental scientist. So that's why you would look at all contaminants? Exactly right. The key thing is that whenever you find contaminants, you, there's always mixtures of contaminants. And I guess I've been working on this for 30 years now. And over 30 years, I've been able to uh, develop quite a lot of knowledge in all sorts of contaminants. Okay. Um, working for 30 years, is PFAS the worst that you've seen? PFAS is a challenge because it is an emergent contaminant. It's also a challenge because you're not dealing with a single active ingredient in that if you have a lead contaminated site, you're only dealing with lead. If you have an arsenic contaminated site, you're only dealing with arsenic. Pesticides, single pesticides. PFAS is a mixture of nearly 4,000 different chemicals all in the mixture, and we've been able to identify no more than 45 active ingredients of which there are only few for which we have some knowledge of potential uh, risk it poses to the environment, for instance. So PFAS is quite a challenge to analytical scientists to be able to come up with the methods to decipher all those 4,000, and the question is, do we need to do that? The second is for toxicologists. Do we look at the toxicity of single constituent or mixtures, for instance? And quite a challenge for remediators as well, because it is one of the most stable compound, because carbon fluorine bond is the strongest bond, and therefore to mineralize that, you need to go to great lengths. For example, you can only do that at a temperature of 1,000 to 1,300 degrees Celsius. And if you're using incineration, it's a challenge, because you, this emission, you have to manage emission. You have hydrogen fluoride that is coming out of the system, and you have to manage that as well. So yes, um, it is quite a challenge, and in my 30 years, this is one contaminant that I believe is far more challenging to come up with a solution than, for instance, for lead or arsenic to us. Yes, and when you look at the posters that are all around the room in the exhibition hall, there's a lot of posters on PFAS. There's probably more than half, and you've had two full days of PFAS what do you think have been the key messages at this conference about PFAS? Key messages um, at this conference, uh, firstly, um, the paper that was presented yesterday by a scientist from US where he presented information on annual studies that people had conducted and also some studies where they found that PFAS could potentially have adverse effect on animal health, for instance, and potentially therefore human health as well. That's one. And second thing is we still haven't been able to get evidence that PFAS kills people. So there's still some doubt about that. I'm glad you bring that up because I have a question. Yes. Um, I've talked with researchers and they said they can't actually design a study. There is, there is no study design where you could prove that PFAS causes something else because you can't make people drink PFAS and you can't find a control group that doesn't have PFAS in their blood. To me, don't we need to pay more attention to the associations if we can't prove causal by study design? 
Absolutely right, yes. Uh, study design is important. But I also know that in a number of countries now, they have researchers who are targeting those suburbs where there are a number of PFAS contaminated sites. Uh, and I know this because I have reviewed a number of proposals from other countries, largely from doctors, uh, where they are looking at adults and also teenagers and age brackets because adults have been exposed longer than children, for instance. And then they're trying to see whether that exposure could be linked to human health problems that they're experiencing. So it's a matter of time, I believe. Mm. We're talking about epidemiological studies. Epidemiological epidemiological studies, that's right. Now, unlike other contaminants where people use, for instance, animals, we can also do the same thing with PFAS, but then linking that to human is quite a challenge and you cannot use human for test. Exactly. And then also the Australian government has now stopped the free PFAS blood testing, so we are losing key longitudinal data. How do you feel about that? When I look at some of the other countries, they still do that, particularly in suburbs that are impacted. And to come up with sound decisions, you do need reasonably long study period because PFAS ingestion can be by different sources, for example. And if you've already got that in your system, it's always good to see where it is sitting, which tissue it is sitting in, whether it's in the blood and does it come out in the urine, the whole lot of things that still needs to be done. And therefore, I would have liked to see a longer-term study. Yes, because the tests are $650 and prohibitive for the average Australian to get that test. What do you think the Australian government needs to do? And then what do you think the scientific community need to do to sort this PFAS issue? I think Australian government is quite unique in that it has taken this on board and Prime Minister also has a task force where they have provided funds for research. What needs to be done from research perspective that of course requires funding is the recognition that any contaminant that we have, for us to be able to assess and clean up and define what the endpoints for cleanup are, we need appropriate guidance. Guidance requires research which can lead to threshold values for environmental investigation levels and also human health investigation levels. At the moment, the numbers that we have, we often borrow it from other, from other countries and we often base these on assumptions as well. So what I'm looking forward to is further support from the government that enables scientists to come up with those investigation levels that tell us what are the safe levels in the environment and what happens if you exceed that to the sensitive biota that you have in the environment. What are the safe levels for human, for instance? These are some of the numbers that we still need to work on and I'm hoping that the government will be able to provide funds that will help us do that. And food monitoring. I mean, TDIs, tolerable daily intakes, the average person can't manage a tolerable daily intake of PFAS. It's impossible because we don't know where the food was grown or the land that it was grown on. We don't know what water was used, what soil. So what do you think needs to happen in the food industry regards to PFAS? There's very little that has been done on food. For instance, uh, there was a time we used to do market basket surveys to look at the presence of potential toxins, including pesticides in vegetables and fruits, for example. For PFAS, we haven't done anything like that at all. But then we have to ask this question, would you expect PFAS to be present in farms where they grow vegetables? Would you expect PFAS to be present in hydroponics, for example? What are people using to contain this nutrient solution that, is, that flows through? So the first thing to do then is to look at how they 
people manage their farming systems? Are they using anything other than fertilizer they buy? What is the source of water, for instance? The water they use, does it contain PFAS? Uh, are they using any other source of nutrients other than nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, for example, biosolids? Now, the challenge is if you look at cadmium in farms, for instance, very low dose cadmium is present in farmland, but it's the bioaccumulation into vegetables or wheat that elevates the concentration above threshold values, and we are managing that really well. Using so, lime, right? Using lime, we are managing that really well. And therefore, um, for all farmland that has been subjected to biosolids or secondary effluent, for, for instance, the first thing to do is to look at the levels of PFAS in the soil. If it is present there, then to look at the levels present in the vegetables and only then go to TDI. Okay, fantastic. Any last words on PFAS? I've got one more minute. I believe there's quite a large volume of research that's being done right now. Uh, it is really important to see how we can bring that information together uh, and then to be able to analyse, synthesise and see whether then that can lead to us help developing guidance values and also for clean up the environment. And Clean Up Conference is trying to do just that. Okay. Well, I hope you get your funding. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much, uh, Carolyn, and uh, thank you very much for the podcast, and hopefully we are continuing next year. I didn't get to ask as many questions as I would have liked to, but I'm very grateful for his time during a very busy conference. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. At the end of September, I will put up one other interview that I recorded at the Clean Up Conference, and that's with an environmental engineer, Helena Henriksen from Envitech in Sweden. Here's a little bit of that interview now. What's your opinion of PFAS as a contaminant? Well, it's man-made. So we did a good job there, and now we're going to clean up after ourselves. It's a nasty contaminant. We have still lots to uh, investigate about it, on just how toxic it is and, and how many are toxic. And I think it needs to be more known to the public what PFAS is. And I think what we all need to know is that we actually are moving forward. It is really bad, but good things are happening. So solutions are coming along. Uh, so I see there's hope. I've done two projects in Sweden where we've shown that we have about uh, 94 to 99.9% reduction uh, of, of leachate. And so we've taken that soil, treated it and put it in the landfill so it doesn't leach. But due to that it's non-leaching now, it's a lower class, uh, it doesn't cost as much to bring yeah. into the landfill. And it could go to normal landfill. Yes, that's what we're doing. Thanks again for listening and don't forget you can follow Talking PFAS on Twitter. I tweet nationally and globally about PFAS. So the Twitter handle is Talking PFAS and you can also email me at talkingpfas at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening and remember all information in today's episode is copyright. Please share but contact me for reuse permissions. Thank you very much. See you next time.